Well, I've always loved that hymn. Uh, God rest you, Mary Gentlemen. I remember as a kid listening to uh, the Garth Brooks version. I don't know if you know that, that version. I love that version. Um, but it's kind of a haunting song, isn't it? The, 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 the main line is tidings of comfort and joy, and yet it's kind of a haunting melody. It's slow, it's reflective, it takes us some time to get through all of the verses, and part of that is because it, this, this hymn calls us to reflect upon uh, one of the great truths of Christmas, which is the defeat of Satan. I don't know how many of you think about Christmas and Satan together. When, when you're celebrating Christmas, how many of you instinctively think of Satan? Probably not. And yet this Christmas hymn, that's one of the main themes, is Christmas and Satan. So if you look up here, that is not a typo. Today we are going to consider Christmas and Satan. That, not Christmas and Santa, Christmas and Satan. Now I appreciate if you confuse the two from time to time. Uh, they both uh, aspire to be God. They both uh, claim to some omniscience, which is not true. They both uh, subscribe to a works-based gospel. And they both are traditionally uh, featured in red. So, but we're not talking about Christmas and Santa. We are talking today about Christmas and Satan. I don't know how many of you have uh, heard this song, Grown Up Christmas List. Have you heard that on the radio? Maybe it's on one of your, your playlists. It's not a bad song. Uh, actually, the, the core of it is quite good. If you listen, here's my grown-up Christmas list, not for myself, but for a world in need. Now, this is the list. No more lives torn apart. Wars that would never start. That time would heal all hearts. That everyone would have a friend Right would always win. Love would never end. It's not a bad list. This is my grown-up Christmas list. Uh, Amy Grant added this verse. As children, we believe the grandest sight to see was something lovely wrapped beneath the tree. Well, heaven surely knows that packages and bows can never heal a hurting human soul. And then she goes back into her grown-up Christmas list. Um, it's not a bad list, and it's, it's anti-materialism, so it, it gets points for that. However, the whole song is prefaced in the first two bars, with, or two, first two verses, with this is a, a grown-up writing to Santa Claus. Do you remember me? I sat upon your knee. I wrote to you with childhood fantasies. Well, I'm all grown-up now, but still need some help somehow. I'm not a child, but my heart still can dream. So, here's my lifelong wish, my grown-up Christmas list, not for myself, but for a world in need. And then the list, and then Amy Grant's additional verse, which is anti-materialism, back to the grown-up Christmas list. And then this line, what is this illusion called the innocence of youth? Maybe only in our blind relief can we ever find the truth. And then one more time, the grown-up Christmas list. Now, as I said, this is not a terrible song. It's anti-materialism, which is good at Christmas. There's much more to Christmas than presents under the tree. And, and this desire that lives wouldn't be torn apart, that there, we'd have world peace, that, that hearts would be healed, that no one would be lonely, that the truth would always win, that love would never end. Those are good things to ask for. The problem with the song is where the singer goes to with this list. Now, you don't write a list like this to Santa Claus because Santa Claus can't deliver these kinds of things. Where do you go? You go to God. And the amazing thing about this song is twofold. Number one, you don't have to be a Christian to see that the world is a mess. You don't need to be a Christian to see that, that the world needs something. The world is ripping apart. It's filled with evil and heartache and sorrow, broken relationships, wars. The truth doesn't always win. Love is often in short supply. Materialism has run amok. But you don't go to Santa for these things. 
You can't look inside to somehow solve this problem. Second thing that I love about this song, which is maybe counterintuitive, is that this song identifies the chief work of Satan. It's Satan loves the destruction in this world. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He's a thief. And he loves to see the world broken. So here's my grown-up Christmas list. Oh, Lord Jesus, come and defeat Satan. Come and defeat the prince of this world. Come and defeat the God who has blinded eyes and stolen lives and wrecked relationships. Come and bind the strong man and take back your world. Now that's a Christmas list. And that's exactly what God's purpose is. So today we're going to look at how does God deliver on that request by examining what is the relationship between Christmas, God sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world, God himself in human form, to defeat Satan. Would you pray with me? Oh God, I I do thank you that we want so much more than packages and bows. Things that we can buy to somehow soften the, the, the pain and to, to mute out the difficulties in life. God, we want so much more than that. We want total healing. We want complete reconciliation with you. We want the defeat of our enemy, Satan, the prince of this world, the devil, who deceived our ancient mother Eve and caused Adam to stumble, introduced sin and wickedness and curse into the world. Oh God, is there any way out of this? We thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, as we consider Christmas and Satan together and what you've done, dealing a death blow to him and his work, uh, I pray for this church that you would help us to rejoice. And this Christmas, think a little bit about Satan. Uh, And to be glad that we have tidings of comfort and great joy because he's been defeated. And God, help me to preach. Help us to receive this great gift. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing that I believe we need to notice about this song, God Rest You, Merry Gentlemen, is first of all where the comma is. God rest you, Mary. Gentlemen, God rest ye merry means may God give you total peace, shalom, not, not peace the way we think of peace, a therapeutic peace, but shalom, wholeness. God keep you, that's to rest you. God keep you, God give you the gift of merriment, peace, wholeness, rest, comfort, no fear. Be merry, don't be afraid. Uh, Merriment is the opposite of fear and anxiety and panic and dread. God keep you in a state of merriment. God rest ye merry. Gentlemen. So so there's an exhortation, an, an invitation even, to be merry because of Christmas. And it's addressed to gentlemen, which is an antiquated way of saying people. People, be merry. And then, and then the second thing that we need to notice is that most of this hymn goes through the story, right? It's, it's very narrative heavy. So we have in verse 2 that in Bethlehem in Israel, there was a blessed babe that was born. He was laid in a manger upon this blessed morn, and his mother Mary did not take anything in scorn. I mean, she could have. She could have lamented the fact that she had to give birth in a cold cave. She could have lamented the fact that nobody would give her a room. But she didn't. She, she praised God. It, it, with all of her circumstances, she praised God. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Verse 3, the, the narrative continues. From God, our Heavenly Father, a blessed angel came, and unto certain shepherds, that there, were, there were particular shepherds, brought tidings of the same, that in Bethlehem was born the Son of God by name. With tidings, comfort, and joy. In verse 4, 
plot continues. Fear not then, said the angel. Let nothing you affright. Today is born a Savior of a pure virgin bright to free all those who trust in Him from Satan's power and might. O tidings of comfort and joy. Here we get the first indication of the deep theology of this hymn. There's something about the birth of Jesus that renders Satan inoperable and defeated. The plot continues though in verse 5. The shepherds at those tidings rejoiced much in mind. They left their flocks of feeding in tempest, storm, and wind. And they went to Bethlehem straight away. The Son of God to find, O tidings of comfort and joy. Verse 6, when they came to Bethlehem, where our dear Savior lay, they found him in a manger where oxen feed on hay. His mother kneeling down until the Lord did pray, O tidings of comfort and joy. Thus the mere retelling of this Christmas story, what what happened in time and space 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, is enough to bring us tidings of comfort and joy. God became a man, was conceived in the womb of a virgin, was born in Bethlehem in a cave. O tidings of comfort and great joy. As I hinted though, the theological contribution of this Christmas hymn goes far beyond the narration of the events themselves. Underneath the history of this hymn, or the history that this hymn recounts, is the mission of God to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. So we go back to verse 1. God rest you merry, gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. As I said, to rest Mary is a command and an invitation. It's an invitation in the form of a command to be peaceful, to be joyful. And then let nothing you dismay. Not, not let some things you dismay. Let nothing you dismay. What is it in your life that is causing you to be dismayed? What is it that gives you anxiety? What is it that has drawn you into a deep depression? What is it that causes you to panic? What brings you sorrow? What causes you anguish? What has got you handcuffed, imprisoned? What is it in your life where you say, if it was just not for this one thing, my life would be okay? Or maybe it's several things. Maybe maybe you're so riddled with anxiety and fear and depression and sadness and grief that you're dismayed about all kinds of things. Then this, this exhortation is crucial for us to hear at Christmas. Let nothing you dismay. Do not be weighed down by any temporal difficulties. Why? How is it that Christmas can lift the burden of life off us entirely, so totally, that there's nothing left to weigh on us? It's this message that Christ our Savior has been born to rescue us from Satan's power. We had gone astray. We had put ourselves under His power and God came in the person of His Son to rescue us. And if we could only keep our minds set on that glorious truth, there's nothing in this world that could cause us to be dismayed. Because the great enemy of the human race has been conquered. The strong man has been bound up. We have been liberated. There's nothing that the the devil or his demonic horde can do to us. They cannot touch us. We are untouchable. And though this life will have its difficulties, whether they be health difficulties, relational difficulties, financial difficulties, one day, unless the Lord returns, we'll all die. But don't be dismayed. Have a long view of your life. Christ has been born to liberate us. We're set free 
so that we don't even need to fear our own death. So total is the deliverance. God will raise us from the dead. So Satan sends someone to kill me. I'll die. Should I be dismayed? No, why? Because Satan has been conquered. He who had the power of death and the fear of death has been conquered so that God at His command will raise my body back to life to live with Him forever. We have to have a long view of life to remember all that God has given to us through Christ who was born on Christmas Day. The, the, one of the greatest Christmas gifts that God has given to us is that He has conquered the devil. And this hymn exhorts us to remember that Christ was born to save us from all of Satan's power when we were gone astray. So how often do we celebrate the breaking of Satan's power as a part of our Christmas tradition? Do you ever, on Christmas morning, take a moment with your family to say, kids, gather around, let us remember that the great enemy of our souls has been conquered. He can't touch us. We belong to God in Christ. That's what we need to remember on Christmas Day. You know, I thought about why it is that I don't, and I imagine most of us don't do what I just asked us if we do. We don't remember Satan because we have either marginalized him, thinking that, well, he's not that powerful after all. We've, we've forgotten him. We've, we've ignored him and, and the havoc that he's wreaking over the, the, the whole face of this earth and in our own lives. Our lives are difficult because Satan is still large and in charge. He's still the God of this world. He's still the prince of the power of the air. He still controls the world's systems. So when your life is hard, whether it be a health-related issue, a financial issue, a, a political issue, a legal issue, a relational issue, it can all get traced back to Satan. But we marginalize him. We forget about him. We pretend he doesn't exist. That's one reason we don't do this. The second reason, perhaps, is we give him too much power. And there's something that we cherish about our own anxiety and depression and sadness and fear. As much as we hate it, we, we love it. We cultivate it. We say, I don't want it, but I don't want to get rid of it. I don't want to hear that God has taken it away from me. And, and so, though we feel helpless, we, we carry it with us. And we don't allow the truth of the gospel to break through so that we can release our grip on the very thing that we hate which is our own fear and sadness and grief and anxiety. Now hear me for a moment. And I don't want to get into this too much. I'm not talking about clinical depression. I, I, I'm not talking about chemical imbalances. I'm talking about the spiritual war that wage, rages in our souls. That's what I'm talking about. And I understand that there's a whole other side to this topic. That's not what I'm addressing here. I'm talking about the spiritual side. Third reason, then, which relate to these two reasons that we don't think about Satan at Christmas is I, I wonder if we've forgotten that he's very powerful. We've forgotten what is his realm. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time is ask this question, what is Satan's power and might? We're told that Christ was born to save us all from Satan's power and might. Therefore, let nothing us affright. It's a nice rhyme. We've been freed from Satan's power and might. Well, what is this power and might? Would you be able to answer that question? If we're going to celebrate that we've been freed from Satan's power and might, we have to know what is Satan's power and might. What is his strength? What is his stronghold, his stranglehold over this world? Well, I've identified from the New Testament alone nine things that the Bible says Satan has power over. So let's just review those. Number one, Satan has the power to tempt. God doesn't tempt us. Satan tempts us, or he sends some demon to tempt us. In addition to that, we are all weak in our flesh, and we desire 
things so we can tempt ourselves, but, but there is a spiritual war going on, and the devil and his de- demons are always trying to tempt us. In Mark 1.13, we're reminded of this, that Jesus himself was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. God even gave Satan the power to tempt God incarnate Jesus Christ. And Jesus was with the wild animals, and after Satan fled from him, then the other angels came and ministered to him. So we see there the power to tempt. In 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, Peter exhorts us, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What does it mean that Satan is prowling around like a lying lion seeking someone to devour? It means Satan is always trying to entice human beings to do something evil to bring destruction in on themselves and on those around them. Small things, big things. You read the news, you see the handiwork of Satan's prowling. He is like a lion enticing people to do awful things. I don't think I need to give you any examples. Just read the news. Just look at your own life, the life of your family. And so we are to be sober-minded, to be watchful, because Satan has the power to tempt. And this power is, is described like a lion prowling, devouring. The second thing Satan has the power of, Satan has the power to deceive. In Genesis 3, 1, we're told that the serpent, which is Satan, whether or not he manifested himself as a snake or he possessed a snake, the Bible doesn't say. But in the form of a serpent, Satan shows up. And he was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And we know that this was the beginning of a great deception. He sowed the seeds of doubt and he deceived the woman and the woman sinned, and he gave, she gave the fruit to her husband who willingly disobeyed God. So Satan's playbook always includes some kind of deception to take the truth and to twist it a quarter turn. Is it, did God really say that? Is that really what God said? Is that really what God meant? And, and to get even those who want to follow God's words to, to be deceived. In Mark 4.15, Jesus is given the, uh, the parable of the sower and the seeds and he says there's a sower and he has all these seeds and he he throws seeds and the seeds are the gospel and the seeds fall in in the thorny bush and they fall in the shallow soil and they fall on the path and they fall in the good soil and he says these are the seeds that fall along the path that's the roadway where the word is sown where the gospel is sown when they hear that is when the people hear Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. How does Satan take away the gospel from somebody who hears the gospel? Well, he blinds them to it or he deceives them. He tricks them into thinking, this isn't true. 2 Corinthians 4.4, we see another example of this. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's, that's pretty clear, isn't it? That's some power. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Satan is actively, not always directly, but always indirectly, through world systems, through uh, cultures and... and um, uh, governments and all kinds of things, media and entertainment and and all kinds of things. He's blinding the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. So Satan has the power to deceive and to blind, which are the same thing. And, And if Satan is successful in his deception, those who are deceived, those who are blinded, go to hell. That's power. 
Third, Satan has the power to cause sickness. I'm not the kind of person who attributes every headache to the work of the devil or every flu to the work of Satan, but it is a scriptural truth that God does allow Satan in a way that I don't understand to bring about physical sickness. You think about the, the life of Job. God said you can't kill him, but you can make his life physically miserable. And so he did. In Luke 13, 16, we also hear this. Uh, Jesus had healed a woman on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees, rather than rejoicing that God would bring healing to this woman, were accusing him of working on the Sabbath. And he's outraged by this, rightly so. And he says to them, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for eight years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. She becomes an image of physical bodily resurrection that that some of our sickness is just the result of living in a uh, sin-death environment, living in a fallen world. And so sickness is all the result of sin, maybe not directly, but go back to the first sin. There would be no sickness. There would be no death if we had not sinned. And the author of that sin is Satan himself. Fourth, this gets even more frightening. Satan has the power to possess people. We don't like to think about that in the West, right? That was an ancient misunderstanding of something. But the Bible is very clear that either Satan or other demons can possess human beings and animals. We see a chief example of Satan actually possessing someone. Not often do we see Satan possessing someone. It's usually some other demon. But in in the case of Judas Iscariot, Satan would not leave the job to any other demon. Satan, who is the king of the demons, entered into Judas himself. Luke 22, 3. Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Why did Judas do what he did? He was possessed by the devil. He, he became the, the suit of the devil to put Jesus to death by crucifixion. And after the devil had left him, there was some remorse. And he, it, Judas shares the guilt of what he did. But he was possessed by the devil. And after the devil left him, he was oppressed to the point of suicide. If you're a true believer, if if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you cannot be possessed by a demon or by the devil. The Holy Spirit will not share you with the demonic world, so that's very good news. But even true believers can be oppressed. That's the fifth power of Satan. Satan has the power to oppress. Luke 22, verses 31 to 32. This is at the Last Supper, and Jesus is telling his disciples, look, I'm going to die tomorrow and you're all going to run away. One of you is going to betray me. And Peter says, not me, not me. I'm not going to do that. I would never leave you. I would die before I did that. Jesus looks at him in Luke 22, 31 and 32, and he says, oh, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, that when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. What is it that Satan asked permission to do? I mean, there's a little caveat here. Satan can only do what God gives him permission to do. What did Satan ask God permission to do? Satan asked God permission to oppress Peter so that he would deny Jesus at the very moment when Jesus needed him the most, needed in a relational sense. And God said, okay. But you can't possess him. Six. Or let me, before I go to six, how does Satan oppress us with all kinds of things? You ever feel just this fog descend upon you and you can't hardly think rationally about something and you have this sadness or this anger 
or this frustration or this anxiety, all kinds of negative emotions. But the one thing that unites is it's sort of like a fog that you can't control. It's, it's in you, but it's more external. And you feel just, oh, I can't get out of this. It's just a, a bad stretch, a bad few days, bad week, bad season. And then all of a sudden one day it just lifts. And you know, wow, things are clear. I'm thinking clearly. I'm feeling clear. You ever have that? That's not always, but I think that's very often spiritual oppression where for whatever reason the, the devil has asked permission to oppress Sixth, Satan has the power to accuse. Do you know Satan has a role to play at the final judgment? He's going to stand up. Well, he'll already be in the lake of fire, but he will have said his bit, and he'll say, look, these people deserve to join me in hell. He's the great accuser. Colossians 2, 13 to 15, you who were dead, in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now this deserves a whole sermon, but this is the point I want to make. At the very end, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Who are the rulers and the authorities? It's Satan and his demons. He has disarmed them. He's disarmed Satan. He's disarmed the, the demonic world. He's put them to open shame by triumphing over them. How did he put the devil to open shame? The devil is continually accusing us of being guilty of breaking the law. Therefore, because we have broken the law, we deserve to be punished. We deserve to be raised from the dead and to be condemned forever. In, that's the second death. He says, we deserve to remain dead in trespasses. To be condemned. But the open shame is that we've been made alive with God and we've been forgiven of all our trespasses. And that makes Satan look like a fool. He is shamed. He is saying, this one is guilty. And God says, I see no guilt. How? Well, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us and all of its legal demands. Therefore, the devil is put to shame when he accuses us of being guilty and worthy of hell. Again, that deserves its own sermon. But the whole point is, Satan has the power to accuse You ever feel that in your life? You feel guilty? Sometimes God, Satan will accuse you before God, but he's been put to open shame in the courts of heaven, so he'll come and he'll accuse you to your face. And you might, if you're not rooted in the gospel, buy into the lie that you are guilty and worthy of death and hell. That's a lie. But that's the power of Satan. Satan. To make such accusations. Number seven, Satan has the power to hinder gospel work. First Thessalonians 2, verses 17 and 18. Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person but not in heart, we endeavored more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Paul's writing to Thessalonians. He's trying to explain why he's been delayed in coming to Thessalonica. It's like, I wanted to be there. I wanted to get to you. I, I, I'm not separated from you in heart. I still love you as much as I always did. Don't take my absence from you as an indication that I love you any less. In fact, he goes on, he says, I've been trying to get back to Thessalonica. We wanted to come to you. I'm telling you this, says Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. Satan was gaining some inroads into the Thessalonican church. He didn't want Paul to go there and correct the problem. So even though he's defeated, he can still meddle in and hinder gospel work. Number eight, 
Satan has the power to reign in this world. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, in the coming of the lawless one, that is, Paul is looking forward near the end in the coming of this Antichrist. So there's an Antichrist that is going to come. Well, is God raising up an Antichrist to oppose the people of God? No. The coming of the lawless one, says Paul, is by the activity of Satan. And he's going to do it with all power and false signs and wonders. And it's not explicit here, but it becomes explicit in the book of Revelation. See, Satan wants to be God. So Satan wants to be God the Father. He raises up an antichrist to be the false Jesus, the antichrist, the false Messiah. And he will raise up a false prophet to be the false Holy Spirit. You have the unholy counterfeit trinity. And Paul says, because Satan is the great counterfeit that wants to oppose God and God's people, before the end, you're going to see the emergence in all power, and false signs and wonders of a counterfeit trinity. And this is not the work of God, this is the work of Satan. And God will give Satan power and permission to reign for a time in this world. We don't have to wait to the end of the age to see that Satan has power over this world. In Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12, we're told by Paul that we are to put on the whole armor of God that we, will meet, that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now this is, again, deserving of a whole sermon, but the whole point is this. The world government systems are controlled by demonic Forces. I know that sounds like science fiction. That's what the Bible says. So the powers and the principalities are indirectly being influenced by, and it doesn't mean there can't be a war even at the level of government. There can be a move forward, a Christian move forward, but then there's always going to be the counterattack by Satan on the level of governments. So he has the power to reign in this world. And just for the record, Satan doesn't care if he spoils the human race by, by lavishing riches on us, which pollute and poison the human soul as much as starvation, drought, war. He doesn't really care how the human race is spoiled and ruined as long as it's ruined. So just because we don't have uh, some, of the other, some of the evils that are elsewhere in the world, we have enough evil on our own doorstep that are also the work of the devil. And here's the great tragedy is how many Christians buy into the very poison that Satan is using to corrupt the human world. The wealth and prosperity and relative comfort of our age, we say, yeah, I'll have that and a side of the gospel as well. We're at war against the devil, even in Canada. And it's not just against those so-called liberals. The war is on all fronts. If we were to get a conservative government, do you think the devil would say, oh, well, you know, conservative government, can't do anything there. So we could be a little less smug about our political aspirations. There's no political party that the devil's not going to meddle with. Finally, Satan has the power of death and the fear of death. Ephesians 2, 1-3, you're dead. You're dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by children, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Implication, we'll all die. You buy what the devil is selling, and you'll die 
And we've all bought what the devil is selling at one point in our lives. Therefore, we will all die. Praise be to God that we'll be raised back to life if we're in Christ. But death entered into the world through the deception of the devil. And so the devil has power of death. Not just the power of death, but the power of the fear of death. And he holds the fear of death over us like like that great ancient terrorist that he is. In Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, that's Jesus, partook of these same things, that through death Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. Here's the truth. Jesus came not just to rescue us from death, but also from the fear of death. Anyone here still fear death? I do. But I'm at a point now where I'm continually asking God to help me to overcome my fear of death. Maybe you would put it this way. I don't fear death. I just fear dying. Well, yeah. I, I see that, the pain of it all. I understand that. And I, I'm there as well. I don't fear being dead. But even the fear of dying is a, a lifelong slavery that comes from the devil. Because it inhibits us it prevents us from living fully for God it prevents us from actually taking the risks that God wants us to take for the sake of the gospel because I'm too afraid I'm too afraid of my own death or my own dying to go out there and take a risk for the cause of Christ and the devil loves that he enslaves us to that fear do you know what's uh, the Japanese in World War II were a frightful uh, force because they, they had kamikaze warriors who made, they made themselves the weapon. What would happen if Christians all over the world no longer feared their own death? And we just said, let's go. Let's get the gospel to everyone. Well, we could turn the world in a generation. That's what would happen. Or maybe it's not death. Maybe it's I don't want to lose my house. Or I don't want to lose my nest egg. I don't want to lose my retirement savings. I don't want to lose fill in the blank. That's a form of slavery. So Satan is a powerful creature. He's not a god. We call him the god of this world, but he's not a god. He's a creature. But he's powerful. He's the great tempter, deceiver, agent of sickness, possessor, oppressor, accuser, meddler, ruler, murderer, and terrorist. You know, there's no horror movie that is as frightful as Satan. You see all the evil in the world? You, you think of, in our generation, the Holocaust is the greatest example of evil? That, that's just beginning to explore the depth of the corruption of who Satan is. And he loved the Holocaust. And he's prowling around this world like a lion. Jesus, who created Satan, sums it up for us in John 8, 44. Satan, says Jesus, was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Not only is Satan these things then, tempter, deceiver, agent of sickness, possessor, oppressor, accuser, meddler, ruler, murderer, and terrorist, but he's powerfully these things. Without Christmas then, now let's come back to God rest you merry gentlemen. And, and this is why I'm inviting you, I'm asking you to think about these things at Christmas time. Without Christmas then, the lyrics of God rest you merry gentlemen would be very different, wouldn't they? 
they would go something like this. God rest ye frightened, gentlemen. Let all things you dismay. Remember Satan, our adversary, who spoke to Eve that day. He keeps us all within his power, for we have all gone astray. Oh, tidings of distress and despair. Apart from Christ, apart from Christmas, the spiritual realities of this world are more frightening than our greatest horror. You've never had a nightmare so bad. The worst of human evil showcases the evil of the devil. A world without Christ is nothing but the worst of human experience. Deep fear, great panic, isolation, anxiety, depression. We will be haunted and hunted until our very last day. We would know only of pain and endless misery. You see, even the good in this world is only because of God's common grace. God has not given Satan the power to, be, to make this world as awful as he desires to. Though in the final hell, there will be no checks against him. No checks against his power. God will not show up to intervene with any common grace. Common grace is just God saying, go this far and no further. And Satan, who now is a cruel slave master, will show the fullness of his strength in the lake of fire. And this cruel slave master who threatens us with death every moment of every day of our life until that death finally comes and then will be condemned to an eternal hell with no God to save us from the evil impulses of the devil, the dem demons, and one another. And such is the reality of Life without Christmas. But, God rest you merry. Because, from God our Heavenly Father, a blessed angel came, and unto certain shepherds brought tidings of the same, how that in Bethlehem was born the Son of God by name. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Fear not, said the angel. Let nothing you affright. This day is born a Savior of a pure virgin bright to free all those who trust in him from Satan's power and might oh tidings of comfort and joy oh god rest ye merry gentlemen let nothing you dismay remember christ our savior was born on christmas day to save us to save us To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. I fear we have forgotten the great enemy of our soul and all that we've been saved from. Because Christ is the victor. And we belong to him. And if to him, Satan can't touch us. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you. Satan really is a scary creature. Um, we don't often like to think about him, but he is making a mess of this world. I pray that you would help us to remember that Jesus came to bind the strong man, to defeat the devil and if we belong to Christ we don't belong to the devil he has no real power over us we are victorious 
We are more than conquerors. He's been put to open shame. He cannot keep us in a lifelong slavery to the fear of death, nor does he have the power of death. So here's my lifelong wish, my grown-up Christmas list. No more lives torn apart. Wars would never start. Time would heal all hearts. Everyone would have a friend. Right would always win. Love would never end. It's a good list. And this list is ours in Christ and more. Because Satan has been defeated. We need not fear the devil or anything he tries to bring against us because we belong to the king of the universe of all creation. Therefore, let us go out with tidings of comfort and joy and remember this Christmas season all that God has done for us in Christ. Apart from Christ, we belong to the devil, but because of Christ, we belong to God. Praise be to God. Let me pray. Oh God, this is, I don't know, it's a, It seems like a heavy thing, but it should be a joyful thing to talk about the defeat of Satan. I guess reflecting on who Satan is and all that he has done and all, continu- all that he continues to do, perhaps the partial stronghold he still exercises in our lives for a weakness of faith. But God, I do pray that you would fill us with tidings of comfort and joy. Joy! Joy at the great salvation which is ours in Christ. Uh, We need not fear the devil. And I pray that you would work this, this message into the hearts of each one of us and help us to walk in great victory because of Christ. Lord, this Christmas, remind us all that you've done for us. We love you so. In the name of Jesus Christ who came to defeat the devil, I pray. Amen. Go with these tidings of comfort and great joy. God bless you.